This lecture will cover musculoskeletal disorders to include both um, bone and joint issues and muscle, tendon, and ligament issues. So let's start with talking about something that's relatively common that you may come into contact with in future practice, or at least um, you would interact with a patient or client after they had had this sort of trauma and would be part of their rehabilitation perhaps. Um, there are a bunch of different types of fractures and terminology that might go with it. Um, in terms of some simple terms that might describe the way that something appears when it is um, broken in terms of a bone is a complete or incomplete fracture. So a complete fracture would go all the way through versus an incomplete um, is not completely through the bone. In fact, a term that sometimes is used here is a green stick fracture, especially in children. Um, their bones are a little bit more flexible, and so sometimes that um, fracture line will not go all the way across the bone. It will only be partial, and sort of the bone appears almost a little bent as opposed to broken. Um, other terms that might go with that also is open versus closed. An open fracture actually has a portion of the bone that protrudes through the skin, so it is visible with the naked eye. It's pretty obvious that a fracture is present when you have an open fracture. It also, as we'll talk about in a little bit, um, is more prone to complications as part of the healing process, whereas a closed fracture is not visible. Um, and sometimes has to be distinguished from a sprain or a strain because you can't quite tell um, whether that has that bone has been broken because the signs and symptoms might be quite similar to a sprain or a strain. Then you can use um, some different words to describe the number or the shapes of the pieces, for example. Um, a simple fracture is a single break and the bones are usually still in alignment versus a comminuted fracture is what you see here in this picture. So this often has multiple, not only fracture lines, but pieces. There may be some pieces that are crushed or some smaller fragments that are visible when you look at the image um, on an x-ray. And then a compression fracture is when it's the bone has kind of been crushed or collapsed. And this is what commonly happens with vertebra that they will sort of compress back upon themselves. And that's what you can see here in this photo. And so that might also have multiple fracture lines and fragments, but they're all still um, kind of together there. They've just condensed into a smaller space. An impacted fracture is when one end um, has been sort of forced into the other. And that's what you see here. Um, oh, actually, I'm sorry, that, that's a pathologic fracture. But it happens in a similar um, way with the hip bone that you might have an impacted, um, oh, actually, here's the photo, sorry about that. And so what you see here is that you might see the femoral neck um, forced up into the, the socket here of the joint. And so you might then um, have 
a compression here as well, um, but it looks a little bit different than what you might see in a compression fracture of vertebra. Whereas um, this picture of the pathologic fracture is usually due to some sort of, as its name implies, pathologic or disease process. So this could be because of a bone tumor that has weakened the joint. It could be because, or not the joint, but the bone itself, osteoporosis that weakens the tissue and allows it to break. So those are always going to be associated with some sort of disease state. So in those cases, you would have to treat the primary cause of the disease in order to try to avoid future fractures. A depressed fracture is what happens in the skull when you have um, pieces that are forced inward um, onto the brain. Because that's one of your sort of unique um, bone shapes. These sort of long flat plates don't exist. Um, they're not a common shape of bone and so they're going to look a little bit different when they are fractured. Um, we can also describe the direction of the fracture line itself. A transverse fracture has a line that goes across the bone as opposed to a linear fracture um, is sort of parallel to the axis of the bone. So it's going to, if it's a long bone, it's going to go in that same direction. Whereas an oblique fracture is sort of angled or slanted. It's kind of what you see here in this photo, um, higher on one end of the fracture line than the other. And this is here an example of the transverse. So you can see it's relatively straight across. And then a spiral um, fracture is often from some sort of twisting movement. And so the fracture line also twists um, around the bone. That might be, you know, from spinning in a sporting event, um, you know, any type of movement to get away from a defender or something like that, that would um, make that force go in a spiraling motion on the bone itself. And then there are a few fractures in particular bones that get special names. Um, the Potts fracture, for example, is an ankle injury. Um, so this would be a fracture that involves the tibia and or the fibula. Versus the Collie's fracture is the distal wrist or the distal area of the radius and ulna. And it may, again, it may be one or both of those bones, but it's the wrist area. Um, where you have what's called a Collie's fracture. And those are relatively common with falls. One of your first instincts when you've lost your balance is to put out your hand in order to catch yourself as you fall. Um, so injuries from skateboarding, rollerblading, and older adults when they fall may have a Collie's fracture from trying to catch themselves on the way down. Now, how do bones heal? There is some sort of um, parallel here with the healing lecture we had way at the beginning of the lecture. So some of these terms and this process will be similar. One of the absolute first things that happens with any injury, for example, is bleeding of some sort. And here the bleeding gets a term called hematoma. So this hematoma is a collection of blood and fluid that is both in between the fracture and kind of surrounding it. And this is what you might see from the surface of the skin as a dark reddish, almost purpley black color.
color as the blood collects in that location. Then as that bleeding occurs, you enter an inflammatory stage. And this is that first stage of all healing. And you have the cleanup crew that comes to the area. If it was an open fracture and you had bacteria entering or you know other foreign material, those organisms and um, debris are going to be consumed by macrophages or broken down and isolated in other ways by the immune system. And then you'll have an immune reaction if there is a foreign substance that is seen as an invader. But probably the biggest role here is the cleanup crew. Then as you enter the reparative phase, you begin to have granulation tissue forming. And that is not all that different than what we saw in just basic healing from the beginning of the semester. You have in this case a special term called a collar that forms that is made of granulation tissue. This collar is sort of um, fibro cartilage um, and at this point it's not a hard bony material just yet but it functions to bridge that gap where the fracture is. You're going to get blast cells that come to the area, begin to form new tissue. And that is going to slowly be transitioned into stronger, more dense um, material, more like the original structure. So eventually it becomes a pro-callus and a bony callus. And this all happens as that granulation tissue begins to um, calcify. In other words, it hardens. You're getting more osteoblastic activity. So this, this process is trying to fill that gap with tissue that looks like the original. And that's where that initial callus or procallus begins to get more bony as that calcification occurs. This calcification of the callus makes it stronger and much like what occurs with skin in the healing process, you then have a remodeling process where you have a simultaneous breakdown and rebuilding of the tissue in order to make it look more and more like that original bone. So that's, that's what you're seeing here in this image. As it begins to remodel, you get the collar sort of getting smaller and smaller so that um, if you looked at imaging, you could tell that there was a previous fracture there that would be um, visible on an x-ray, but you would not see the active healing process with the callus forming in the um, calcification of that area. So ideally then, depending on how old the individual is, whatever other factors might be involved, this could heal in a month um, or so in a younger individual to two months or more in an older individual. So this is an important thing to realize that age um, is a really important part 
of the time it takes for that healing process. In a younger person, um, they heal relatively quickly and sometimes to the point where they may not even fully immobilize an area. Um, if it's in a difficult location, for example, if, if a collarbone is broken in a child, they typically just ask that person to wear a sling or that child to wear a sling, um, you know, during daytime hours at the, at the least, um, but they won't really be able to do much more and it may already be partially healed within a few weeks. Um, the extent of the damage is a big part too. Um, the larger the break, the more pieces that are there and the proximity of the bones will make a difference in how long it takes to heal. In other words, if you have multiple pieces um, and the bones were not aligned correctly, um, or if pins or plates were necessary to keep those bones in alignment, then it becomes um, a much longer healing process. If there was any foreign material whatsoever, so this would be one of those open fractures. If bacteria, um, any debris was present, and then even systemic factors, and this usually is an issue in older adults who might already have concurrent disease. So things like heart disease um, and diabetes, those can affect the blood supply which would slow the healing process. Now you can also have a number of different complications that could make that healing process either more painful or take longer um, or even require further surgery or um, antibiotics, something that develops later that could progress if not treated. Muscle spasms are relatively common. So especially if that break um, causes damage to the muscle itself because the bone is not in alignment and it is um, you know, actually coming into contact with a muscle that's nearby, then you could end up with some quite painful muscle spasms. And I'll talk at the end of the lecture about a few medications that are sometimes used to reduce those muscle spasms um, that you know, might make the individual more comfortable. Infection is a serious issue, especially with open fractures or with um, fractures that require surgery to bring those bones back in close proximity. Sometimes the swelling that occurs as a result of a fracture could um, compress blood vessels and slow the blood supply to the area, causing ischemia and even potentially more serious conditions like compartment syndrome. Um, in compartment syndrome, the fluid and pressure within the capsule um, or the fascia actually compresses nerves and blood vessels. And what happens here then is not only do you get pain with that process, you could also get necrosis. So cell, some of those cells, some of the tissue could actually die because they're not getting the correct amount of um, nutrition and oxygen in addition to the, they've lost some of that ability to be innervated by the, the nervous system. There's also something that is more rare and it tends to occur only in certain bones, for example, um, with the pelvis and femur, especially in crush injuries. There is the possibility that from the bone marrow that you could get fat molecules. 
out into the bloodstream. And sometimes that doesn't happen until a few days or a week after the injury, but the issue is that those may travel then to organs and cause organ failure. And some common places for that to happen are the lungs um, and the brain. And that could even be a cause of death following a crush injury. Um, emboli of any kind, especially in the lungs, could end up causing death. Um, signs and symptoms of a fracture depend on the severity, where the location. Sometimes they're obvious. There is a deformity um, in an open fracture, compound fracture. It may be more obvious, um, especially if it's protruding from the skin. And then there are um, some that are a little bit tougher to tell and, and distinguish from a simple sprain or strain. Things that just go with swelling, tenderness, um, pain, um, an inability to move that particular bone or joint or whatever the case might be, that's usually a greater indication of a fracture versus a sprain or a strain. However, if edema is really significant with a sprain or a strain, that will impede movement as well. Um, when a bone um, sort of is scraping against tissue or against the other part of the bone, that is called crepitus. Um, and that's a term that goes with the sound you hear with arthritis in joints, but also applies here when you have a fracture because of the noise generated from the bones um, rubbing against each other. You wouldn't move a limb to, to see if crepitus is there because that might further damage the area if there is a fracture present, but if the individual is trying to move it and you hear something, that could be an indication of a fracture as well. Diagnostics are pretty straightforward. Um, you need to do imaging, and the most common way to do that is an x-ray, and that's what you're seeing here in the examples I've given you on this page. Um, but the treatment is going to depend on the severity. Um, sometimes just splinting or somehow immobilizing that area is sufficient. Um, some areas are not easily addressed. Um, the, the upper arm, the shoulder area, as I said before, the collarbone. Um, sometimes just putting the arm in a sling is about the most you can do because um, that's just a difficult anatomical location to completely immobilize the area versus um, you know, just trying to ask an individual not to use it. So immobilizing toes or fingers might just include splinting to the healthy um, digit next to it so that it reduces the range of motion of the injured area. Um, but sometimes realigning those bones are important and that term is called reduction. And this might just be by applying a cast um, and this is common, you know, with arm injuries, leg injuries, um, versus doing surgery. Um, if that requires the placement of pins or plates, anything like that, then um, reduction may involve actually opening the area to access that um, fracture in order to repair it. Now, there are some other things that end up being confused with a fracture initially because the signs and symptoms are the same. Um, many times some of these are obvious depending on the joint um, and sometimes they're not. You have to actually do an x-ray to figure out what might be going on. So some of these dislocations, sprains, and strains may be obvious that um, like 
for, for example, elbow dislocations, shoulder dislocations, finger dislocations are usually pretty observable with the naked eye. And especially if the individual has had them happen before, then they come to recognize that and might even be able to put those back in alignment on their own. Um, in other cases, it's necessary to go to the emergency room. You usually want pain medication and then they will um, realign those bones. Um, the term for both of them coming um, out of position, or I'm sorry, one of them coming out of position um, is dislocation, but if there's only a parcel, partial displacement of the bones, it's called a subluxation. And the issue with this happening, whether it's partial or complete dislocation, is that any ligaments, nerves, or blood vessels surrounding that area are now sort of pushed out of the way. And so this could be quite damaging to the surrounding tissue, especially if it is a repetitive thing. Um, but initially the pain, swelling, tenderness, deformity, and limited movement might be confused with the fracture. Again, unless the individual has had it before and, and then they sort of understand um, what it looks like. Sprains and strains can also sometimes be confused for a fracture and might require imaging to differentiate. A sprain, is a tear in a ligament. And remember, ligaments are your bone-to-bone -bone connectors versus a strain is, is a, the term for a tear in a tendon, which is your muscle-to-bone connector. And you're probably familiar with some terminology that goes uh, with some of these. In fact, with some of your more common, um, especially sports-related injuries, we might not even use the term sprain or strain, we just give them their, their actual anatomic name. So an individual might talk about having an ACL tear um, or a rotator cuff injury. And so in those cases, they're specifically talking about a sprain of the ACL, but they're, they're not using the term sprain necessarily, or a rotator cuff injury, but they're actually talking because the rotator cuff are actually tendons, then they're talking about a strain. So don't let that confuse you. Um, that's actually more of a descriptive way to, to discuss the particular injury. Now, if there is a complete separation from the bone, it's called an avulsion. And that may happen, for example, sometimes with a hamstring injury um, or a, a Achilles tendon injury where it's completely separated from the bone. But regardless of the location, the severity, there's this set of signs and symptoms that are similar to a fracture, tenderness, swelling, discoloration, in other words, a hematoma or bruise that develops in the area, limited range of motion. And um, depending on what it is, and once it's diagnosed as not being a fracture, then your, your treatment will be determined from there. It might be something that's minor enough that just rest, ice, compression, elevation um, will allow for recovery versus um, an ACL repair, which actually is going to require surgery. So where they go in and actually um, pretty much create you a new ACL. And this um, image here kind of goes through what that process involves. Um, some of you may even get a chance to see this kind of surgery um, in a clinical, potentially in the future. Um, some other potential trauma um, and injury-related issues that involve muscles or other tendons, ligaments, etc., might not always be obvious to an individual without um, consultation with either you or a PT or a physician. For example, um, again, the terminology here is interesting because 
um, a muscle tear or muscle overstretching could actually end up being um, a, a strain from the tendons of the muscle to the bone, but that might not be distinguishable from a muscle pull or tear itself. But there is a difference in terms of how we describe a muscle tear. For example, a minor muscle tear <clears throat> is sometimes called a first degree tear. And it's usually relatively mild in terms of pain. It might even be um, that the individual just overstretched the area. And they're typically with this ends up being not a whole lot of loss of strength or range of motion. On the other hand, when it is a larger tear, but not completely through, the pain is severe and they've typically had a, a substantial loss of strength and range of motion. Um, the, the difference between that and a third degree tear is that the tear goes all the way through um, and that also usually includes a significant amount of bleeding and it may require surgery to fix it, whereas you would just need some long recovery time. Um, the regular rest ice compression might work for a pull or a tear if it's relatively minor. Um, and so some of these things can be um, tough to distinguish. And so that this significant pain and bleeding is probably going to be what's going to make them seek that medical attention to try to distinguish what's going on. Um, and sometimes these would put an individual out of the running for quite some time while they recover. And even after that, it might require a significant amount of rehabilitation with physical therapy in order to regain that strength. And they may never completely return to a, um, a level that they were at with their strength in that muscle previous to the injury. And there are some common locations for some um, muscle pulls and tears, in particularly in athletes or individuals who um, just do um, regular exercise. And here's a hip flexor injury. And this, they use the term grade one as opposed to, opposed to first degree, second degree. Um, that kind of shows you um, some locations for those injuries. And then your hamstring injuries, grade, they also use the term grade, grade one, um, which they're, you know, calling just strain versus a tearing or a complete tear. And sometimes just the repetitive stress of a particular sport or activity might cause a injury of the tendon or the bursa in the area of a joint. So the, the term tendonitis, and sometimes it's spelled with an O, I've seen it both ways here, um, refers to inflammation of the tendon. So this um, might be a little bit different than if the individual had a strain because the signs and symptoms here might not have been isolated to a known acute event. In other words, they may not have rolled their ankle or something and then notice this. This might be that um, just with their normal um, practice, their normal actual engagement in the sport on a competitive level, they begin to notice symptoms of this um, pain, inflammation in particular areas. And there are some places that we even have terms for. Um, for example, tennis elbow is, is a tendonitis of the elbow area. Um, the Achilles is another place that might commonly have um, episodes of tendonitis. And then bursitis is where you get an inflammation of the little fluid-filled sacs that are near many of your joints as a cushioning. And so again, the elbow, the shoulder, 
the hip and the knee are some common places where you might see inflammation. And here, sometimes the, the doctor needs to distinguish between an aseptic bursitis that might just be due to overuse um, versus a septic bursitis, which might require antibiotics because it's usually more red and inflamed and swollen. In that case, it probably means that there are bacteria in the area. And for treating um, these, it might just include, um, again, the rest ice compression elevation, but there may be NSAIDs involved in order to reduce the inflammation. Um, and perhaps, not always in the case of tendonitis, but perhaps with bursitis, antibiotics may be necessary. Now, exercise with pretty much everything in this lecture is either a cause, a prevention, or a treatment. Um, now, in terms of a fracture, it is really, really important to not, at the beginning anyway, not exercise because you need to at least give the bone time to form the beginning parts of that healing process. But um, in order to regain strength and range of motion, this is really important to have exercise and it has to be weight-bearing exercise as part of the recovery process. And those of you going into physical therapy, this may be part of what you do and practice every day um, with you know, patients and clients who are needing that recovery from a fracture. So I don't know if any of you have ever had um, a fracture and it needed to be splinted or casted. You may have noticed that the muscle in that area, because of that lack of use for the time when it had to be immobilized, it really atrophies quite significantly compared to, let's say if it was an arm compared to the other arm or that leg compared to the other leg. And so not only is it important for the bone itself because it rebuilds and helps with that remodeling process, um, but it's also really important for maintaining the range of motion and getting that muscle strength back after that period of atrophy and disuse. So this becomes um, something that an individual needs just to, to get back to normal function, but they may find that it's also an important part of decreasing the pain associated with either the recovery process itself um, or the pain that they're feeling with now continuing to use it. Um, you'll find that with a bunch of these different um, diseases, we've got exercise as either a preventive or a treatment. So here's another one where it is both a prevention and a treatment. So osteoporosis is a metabolic bone disorder where you get a decrease in bone mass or bone density. And there are a couple places where it happens. Um, it can happen anywhere, but there are a couple places where it's particularly troublesome. Um, when it happens in the vertebrae, you actually get those compression fractures that I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. And then it can also be a significant problem in the femoral neck, what leads to what you know the common public calls a hip fracture. Um, and so in those cases, it could be a really significant first step down a slippery slope for an older adult um, who now becomes weak and hospitalized. And I'll talk about some of those potential complications in just a minute. The pathophysiology of osteoporosis happens because you resorb more bone than you make. So bone resorption is where you get rid of it. You, so I don't know if you're sort of coming to understand that now that bone is just not this static tissue. Um, because of 
hypo or, or because of parathyroid hormone, we are constantly using calcium from our bone and putting it back, using it, putting it back. And so this process that's constantly going on usually is in balance. However, with osteoporosis, you begin to reabsorb bone at a greater rate than you form it. And so you end up with this lacy open work of the tissue as opposed to a nice dense um, tissue. And so because of those vertebra fractures, you will get back pain and changes to posture. So the term kyphosis refers to the hunchback that can sometimes occur in an individual with osteoporosis. And you can kind of see in this image that shows, you know, maybe a middle-aged woman as she ages with osteoporosis, there becomes a greater curvature in the upper spine that is due to those compression fractures that are happening and causing the individual to um, have a stooped posture. In fact, I've, I've even seen personally some individuals with osteoporosis who were almost at a 90 degrees um, walking with a cane because the, the osteoporosis had affected their posture so greatly. Scoliosis would be a lateral curvature of the spine, so I don't really have a picture of that here, but that would be where the spine of an individual is, is not aligned left to right. Um, and then other fractures, like a hip fracture, and the femoral neck is one of the more common places, but that doesn't mean other places wouldn't be possible as well. For example, an individual who has a fall and puts their arm out, they may have a wrist fracture, for example, that we talked about earlier. Um, and then other potential issues with fractures, especially from falls, multiple locations of fractures as well. There are some things that predispose people to osteoporosis. One of the biggest things is aging. We know that as individuals get older, they're not depositing as much bone, especially if they are not active. So the more sedentary an individual is, the less bone building they're doing because you need weight bearing activity in order to have stress on the bones and promote formation of bone. So not only is increasing age an issue, being sedentary is an issue, we know that females are at greater risk than men and part of that is due to hormones. So later in life, as women um, decrease their estrogen production, we know that um, with menopause, there's a greater risk of osteoporosis after that because estrogen promotes bone, bone formation. And without it, as they lose it with menopause, there is a greater risk. But we've also talked previously about parathyroid hormone. We know that excessive amounts of parathyroid hormone make calcium leave the bone and go into the bloodstream. So that is a hormone and a condition where osteoporosis might be present. In addition to Cushing's disease, another one, another disease that's hormone related that might have symptoms of osteoporosis. Some of it might be just related to dietary deficits, either currently or earlier in life, where they didn't have enough calcium intake to build bone. Um, and then some, in addition to being sedentary, some behavioral things have a relationship too. Cigarette smoking affects calcium metabolism, as does caffeine intake. And usually in this case with caffeine, it's usually quite a bit of caffeine. So not just, you know, a cup or two of coffee in the morning. We're talking um, several cups of coffee in the morning, plus maybe a caffeinated beverage in the afternoon, in the evening. So excessive amounts of caffeine. Um, bone structure. We know that um, lighter boned ethnicities 
are at greater risk and that should make sense to you because they just don't have as much bone mass to start with. So this tends to be Caucasian, um, Asian individuals that have a smaller, lighter frame. And so they are more at risk because they're just starting with less to start with. Um, some of the potential issues that could be complications or sequelae are related to those fractures that I mentioned. So one of the big potential things that happens is a fall that leads to a hip fracture. And with a hip fracture, that requires hospitalization. Hospitalization may lead to nosocomial infection, like nosocomial pneumonia. In addition to that, the immobility of being hospitalized usually leads to frailty or greater weakness when they get out, which increases their risk of falls again when they get out. So this unfortunately could be a downward spiral that's quite significant for an older adult. In fact, the rates of mortality after a fall are drastically increased in that year after a fall. Um, if that fall has led to a hip fracture, often related to osteoporosis. So this could be a vicious cycle that starts a downward spiral for an individual if they have osteoporosis that leads to a fracture, because then they become so deconditioned that even if they're able to return back home after a hospitalization from a fracture, they are so weak that they, they may continue to have a higher risk of falls and that returns them to the hospital and it just perpetuates this bad cycle. Now there are some ways to treat this. Now, just like I said before, exercise is one of the biggest things that could both prevent it in the first place and also treat um, osteoporosis. But here's the key, weight bearing exercise, and this is huge. One of the things that I'll talk about in a second is popular with older adults who have arthritis is aquatic exercise or water um, exercise. That unfortunately does not help osteoporosis in any way because it's the weight bearing part of that exercise that actually needs to occur in order for the stress to make bone formation occur. Now, that has to be paired with having enough vitamin D and calcium in your diet so that when you do build bone, you have the building blocks available. Um, calcitonin can also help with that. In fact, I believe they make a nasal spray now that can be helpful um, for um, administering that you know, relatively easily. And then other drugs that might also help, usually what these do is they would help with supplementation of vitamin calcium D by preventing re um, abnormal resorption. So they're gonna slow the breakdown of the bone. Um, they might not help as much with building it, but as long as you're taking vitamin D, calcium, getting some exercise, and then slowing down the breakdown, then you might be able to sort of stem the tide of the bone loss and work more toward at least building a little, if not reducing the loss that can occur. So the family of drugs that um, applies here is called bisphosphonates, and you may have seen commercials for some of these. Um, the trade names or um, brand names for these are Fosamax, Boniva, Actinel, Reclast, and there are a bunch of different ways that these might be administered. Some of them are a pill once a week, some of them are a pill once a month, 
Some of them are something that you do as an injection once a month. So there are all kinds of different delivery methods and some of the decisions for what to use for an individual might be part of a discussion on what else they're taking, what other kinds of issues they might have with compliance um, or adherence to a drug regimen. If they're taking a ton of other things, then doing something that doesn't add a pill to their um, regimen every day might be something to think about. Then you have selective estrogen receptor modulators or SERMs. Now, these are interesting because we used to give um, estrogen replacement as a potential treatment for osteoporosis, but we learned over time that that actually caused an increase in breast and uterine cancer risk because of the estrogen in later life. Now, what they were able to find though is that drugs like Avista um, give you the benefit of estrogen at the bone, but don't increase the risk at the breast and uterus. So this is kind of a cool concept. So they bind at the bone, but they don't bind with breast and uterine tissue. Um, so you get that benefit like estrogen, but it's selective so that you get the bone benefit there. So that's kind of a nice option for individuals as well. Um, osteomalacia is sort of a parallel type of condition, but it has a different cause. Um, osteomalacia, or sometimes called rickets in children, is where soft bones occur here, but it's usually that there is not enough calcium or vitamin D, um, and this is earlier in life. Or there tends to be some sort of other um, systemic issue, such as a renal problem that's preventing your um, involvement of vitamin D and calcium, or hyperparathyroidism that ends up causing you to have soft bones earlier in life. So um, with this, if there's insufficient vitamin D, they might not be able to mineralize or absorb that um, calcium, even if they're taking it up into the diet. Um, some other diseases that we've already talked about that can lead to this as well are Crohn's and celiac disease. But in those cases, it's because of the inability to absorb the calcium and vitamin D in their GI tract because of the changes to the GI tract with Crohn's and celiac disease. So those are some things that can come up and it might be easily um, treated with supplementation. But if, if it's not caught right away, there's a possibility of deformity and fracture um, related to that. In fact, the bow legs that you see in rickets with children is typically because of that. They end up with little fractures in the long bones that kind of bow them outward. Um, so this one is a good one to catch early enough that you can address it so you can avoid, especially in children, those long-term deformities because some of those might cause a, a decrease in stature, for example. The child will be shorter because of those chronic fractures in the bones. Another really common condition that you may even have symptoms of already, at least know people in your family who have symptoms of, and that's osteoarthritis. This is a condition of uh, degeneration of the joints. It is a wear and tear process. So in that sense, it's relatively normal. I don't know very many people as they get older who don't have a symptom somewhere in their body of arthritis. And this is just because of normal living and normal wear and tear of joints. So what happens here is that articular cartilage that's normally separating the different bones at a joint is lost. And the ones that 
it happens most commonly is weight-bearing joints and the fingers. These are some really common places for you to have osteoarthritis. So as that surface cartilage wears down, there's tissue damage. And as that tissue is damaged, it kind of goes through a process trying to heal itself. You end up with enzymes being released that disintegrate cartilage even further and the bone thinks that it needs to try to repair itself. And what it then does is tries to build new bone and you end up with damage to the bone underneath the cartilage and then off to the side, you often get new bone trying to form, little bone spurs. And these may, and the technical term for bone spur is an osteophyte. These may break off and then they are sort of sharp pieces of bone that are hanging out in the synovial fluid that may further um, inflame and irritate that joint space. Because of all this inflammation going on in there, you get less space in the joint area. And this secondary inflammation then um, ends up being a source of pain for individuals in addition to just the mechanical um, you know, motion of those bones as they're rubbing together, the pain that it creates. Now the inflammation here you'll note though is secondary. This is going to help us distinguish osteoarthritis from rheumatoid arthritis because inflammation is only a secondary thing. It doesn't always occur with osteoarthritis. Juvenile um, rheumatoid arthritis and adult onset rheumatoid arthritis, inflammation is the primary hallmark. And so that will be a big thing to distinguish. So why does osteoarthritis happen? Well, it depends. Um, there are some cases where we don't really know. Those are idiopathic. So a lot of times arthritis in the hand, um, we don't really know why that happens. If it's just, you know, the individual using their hands and over time that, you know, ends up being a um, ramification of, of just the use of the hands. Versus in some people we know that certain activities predispose them. Sports injuries, trauma near or in a joint, predisposes that person to arthritis in that joint later. Any occupations that require lifting or occupations that require um, a lot of bending of the knees or other types of activities that might overuse a particular joint, especially when that use of the joint is combined with increased weight. Um, we know that people who are overweight have a greater risk of arthritis. People with diabetes have a greater risk of arthritis. So there are certain things we know, and those ones that we can attribute to something else are secondary. But then there are times people develop it and we can't necessarily pinpoint a reason why. So in those cases, it's idiopathic. We know that pain, swelling, crepitus, remember that's that term where the joints make noises. Stiffness, this is a really big one limited range of motion, and sometimes deformity. You may not notice deformity in a knee joint or a hip joint, for example, but the fingers tend to have um, deformity more often than other joints. So in these cases, then, um, knowing the particular location and the severity is going to give you an idea of what that person is experiencing. So if it's a lower joint, um, weight-bearing, they might have um, problems with immobility. So they might um, have issues with walking, increased risk of falls, um, and then just 
even other activities of daily living become difficult. Um, you know, shoulder, this might um, cause an individual not be able to wash their own hair or even being able to lift their arm up um, to get things off of um, an upper shelf or cabinet in the kitchen, things like that. And then hands and fingers, that's going to give you issues with opening bottles, pill bottles, um, writing. I know, for example, my grandmother has trouble writing because of the pain with the, and the deformities in her finger joints. Um, and so the issue is this, with this, unfortunately, is it may lead to further sedentary behavior. What is unfortunate about osteoarthritis, particularly the kind that affects knees and hips, is that because it's painful to move, individuals stop moving. And when they stop moving, they end up becoming more and more stiff. They may gain more weight, which puts more stress on the bone. And they lose that ability um, to do more activity when they finally do get up. And it increases their risk of falls. So as this goes on, it also becomes a vicious cycle where they're no longer able to get around like they used to. There are a lot of people though who um, understand that the, the longer they're sitting or still, the more stiff they get and that will spur them to get up more often and move around and that's a good thing at least. But that all depends on the pain. So what people might not realize, and this is sometimes hard to convince people of, is exercise is truly helpful for arthritis. Initially, it might be painful to start that exercise, but over time, the benefits outweigh the initial pain that you might have in starting an exercise regimen or starting that exercise episode on its own. So long-term, you're strengthening the muscles around the joint. You're improving your endurance so that you can maintain activity. You're reducing falls. And reducing stiffness. And so convincing people that doing exercise, even though it might hurt when they first start, is going to be more beneficial in the long run, that's really difficult to convince people of. But it, it can really be quite helpful. And this is one of the forms of exercise that some individuals will do because um, this takes some of the stress off the joints by um, giving you that sort of zero gravity type feeling in the water. Um, but remember what I said before that this shouldn't be the only form of activity the individual gets because um, this doesn't necessarily help as a form of exercise in treating osteoporosis. So if osteoporosis is also present, or even osteopenia, which is just a low bone density but not quite as bad as osteoporosis, then you need to supplement this with weight-bearing activity also. Now some medications that could help somebody with osteoarthritis are related to both pain and inflammation. So ASA and NSAIDs, we, we know both have analgesic and anti-inflammatory properties. But because inflammation is not a hallmark of this, they may get away with just pain medications. Um, in some cases, to reduce the inflammation, they may actually inject a glucocorticoid into the joint. And that may give them relief from their arthritis for you know, a few weeks to you know, a few months. 
um, depending on the individual, and those can be quite helpful, especially to tide somebody over until they may need a replacement. And that's ultimately what may happen with some people. They can, this is called a TKA, total knee arthroplasty. Sometimes they um, will go in and replace only one part of it, um, or in this case of the hip arthroplasty, they replace only the ball as opposed to the ball and socket. Um, but when they say total arthroplasty, that means they're replacing both parts of the joint. Um, and so you may be able to see some of this um, in the, the human anatomy lab, which is kind of interesting. They usually have, you know, some specimens that include um, joint replacements, which are really great to see. Um, there's also often evidence of existing osteoarthritis, so you can see what the joint surfaces look like before a replacement is done, how rough they are, the lack of cartilage and, and that sort of thing. There, whoops, this should not be confused with rheumatoid arthritis because this is not only a totally different pathophysiology, um, but it can occur at any point during life. Osteoarthritis tends to be something later in life as your age goes up. The, um, the etiology of rheumatoid arthritis is not entirely known. Um, we call it idiopathic, but I have seen some um, research more recently that's indicating a viral trigger might be a possibility, things like Epstein-Barr, which we know is also a potential trigger for some other autoimmune disease, that there might be a genetic link that predisposes someone to autoimmunity. Um, for example, some of the things that I've seen have indicated that there is a certain HLA, remember the human leukocyte antigen or MHC complex, that there is a certain um, gene for that um, molecule that a good portion of people with RA have. So we may find out more about this in the near future as research continues. But the biggest thing that I want you to remember about rheumatoid arthritis, it, it, its hallmark is inflammation and it goes through processes of remission and exacerbation. And this is a term that we'll come back to several times, especially with immune diseases, which means you have times in which you don't have a lot of symptoms where it is in remission, and then times where the symptoms and issues are, are exacerbated, where they're more significant, where you're feeling um, all those symptoms and signs. So the, the, during those times of exacerbation, that's when you're going to see all these changes to the joint itself. Synovitis, then, is the technical term for the inflammation that is occurring as the primary pathophysiology here with rheumatoid arthritis. So the inflammation, then, as happens with a lot of, of healing processes, tends to cause the area to begin to make new tissue. So you get granulation tissue. And this granulation tissue in this location is called a panis. This panis is um, what you see here, this um, extra brand new tissue that forms around the joint capsule itself. Then you also get erosion of the cartilage. So you get a breakdown of this, what should be this nice cartilage covering of the, the bone end. And then you're going to get um, some fibrosis and ankylosis, so the, the fibrosis means you're getting calcification of this area around the joint space. And then ankylosis is where you might, because of that calcification, get a fusion of the joint or a change in the alignment or deformity. And you can kind of see that here. 
rather than this um, direct um, relationship between the two bone ends, you get one of them sort of shifted a little bit to the side. Um, and unfortunately, the inflammation that happens with rheumatoid arthritis is not exclusive to the joints. There may be other locations that are also seeing some evidence of inflammation. Um, for example, the lungs, the heart, the kidney, the spleen, these are all potential locations where you might have other symptoms occurring. Um, and I'll talk in a little bit about how in children's rheumatoid arthritis that they almost always have other types of organ or tissue involvement beyond just the joints itself. Now, because of some of these joint changes, the individual usually becomes more sedentary or they're unable to move that. And so they will have atrophy from disuse of that area. They may also have stretching of the tendons and ligaments that surround that joint space. And some of the changes in alignment actually have a special term. So the hands of an individual, the wrists and the hands are one of the most common places that people with rheumatoid arthritis have symptoms. And they can even have changes in the alignment of the joints in the hand that are called a Z deformity. And so the changes um, kind of are in a zigzag pattern. So here you can see there's changes here, there's changes here, and so you can kind of make some connections here with the changes that happen in the direction of those joints. Contractures, again, immobile joints that might require surgery to fix, and you can get little nodules of inflammatory particles. And that's what you see here in this photo that show up on or near the joint itself. And those are some hallmarks of rheumatoid arthritis um, that will not be present um, in other forms. Now, there is a big difference, typically, in the signs and symptoms that might be involved in juvenile rheumatoid arthritis versus an adult onset. Usually, rheumatoid arthritis in adults happens later in life, at least 40, 45 um, or later, um, but certainly as an individual gets older. So with children, it's usually much more acute. In other words, sudden onset, and they tend to have more systemic features like fever. They may have um, maybe only a few joints. And they have a better prognosis in terms of recovery, especially with some of our newer treatments. Um, but what's interesting is they tend to have other antibodies compared to the one in adults, which I'll go ahead and write down here, which is called anti-I, I'm sorry, anti-RF, rheumatoid factor. So rheumatoid factor is not usually present in children. They tend to have one that's called anti-nuclear antibody. That's one that we talked about with lupus. Um, so that doesn't mean that they have lupus. It is just a type of antibody that's present in a bunch of different kinds of autoimmune disease that's seen here in children with rheumatoid arthritis, whereas in adults, they may more often have what's called rheumatoid factor, an anti-rheumatoid um, an anti antibody. Adults, 
on the other hand, they tend to have more symmetric involvement. In other words, at the hands and the wrists are one of the first places, and they'll both be affected. Not just one joint, as can happen, you know, one ankle, one wrist, um, as can happen with children. Um, they tend to have fatigue, certainly swelling and stiffness. And initially, because it's not as acute and sudden as it is with children, they may just notice in the morning that they're more stiff in their hands and their wrists. And then as it progresses, um, it lasts longer during the day and it involves more joints. Um, as far as the diagnosis and treatment, this is kind of tough to diagnose. It can take a long time to really make a realization and rule out that it could be other things. A history, a physical exam that's especially looking for the inflammation in joints. They can do blood tests that are looking for things like CRP for the inflammation um, and antibodies like rheumatoid factor or another one that's called anti-CCP, which is cyclic citrullian peptide. That's one that seems to be more diagnostic because rheumatoid factor might not be present. We know it's not always present in children, but there are adults even who ultimately are diagnosed with rheumatoid um, arthritis who don't have rheumatoid factor. So that's not a definitive diagnosis. As far as treatment goes, because inflammation is such a huge component here, reducing inflammation becomes a big part of treatment. So ASA and NSAIDs for over-the-counter um, steroids, gold salts can be used, but a big part of treatment more recently has, include, has included development of immunomodulating drugs. Methotrexate is a drug that was used for immunosuppressing for a very long time and is still used, but it has a lot of side effects that can be um, you know, kind of frustrating for individuals. But immunomodulators have been a big focus of treatment, and these are used for multiple different um, autoimmune disorders, not just rheumatoid. Um, you've probably even seen advertisements for these. Um, trade names of Remicade, Humira, Enbrel, and these work really well by reducing tumor necrosis factor alpha activity. And you may remember then that is one of those things we talked about as um, a substance in your body that you know has some negative effects. So by reducing that, they are able to reduce symptoms. Then there's also a drug called Orencia that reduces T-cell activity that might be related to the autoimmunity. Then there are non-drug therapies like heat and cold. Um, PT is going to be a really big part of their treatment, especially if they need to maintain muscle strength after um, before and after a surgery to remove the panis, that is sometimes possible that they need to actually go into that joint and remove that bony covering that has developed as a result of the inflammation in the area. Um, but some of the drugs used to treat this now are used by multiple different um, autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis and ulcerative colitis. So you'll probably see some of those drugs come back um, in future lectures for other things we might talk about. There are some other forms of arthritis that I just want to put on your radar that um, tend to not affect every joint. They might be only particular joints. Um, that's septic arthritis and gout. 
Now, septic arthritis is usually, but not always, a single joint. And that particular joint is red, swollen, painful, and you have a decreased range of motion. And as its name implies, it is infectious or septic. So here, the most common organisms are usually bloodborne, gonococcus, staphylococcus, or Lyme. And so this one is from an STD. In fact, sometimes that's the initial diagnosis of the STD of gonorrhea is symptoms of an, a, a joint that has arthritis in a younger person, which you don't normally expect. Lyme is what you would see from ticks, particularly in Connecticut, the Connecticut, New England area. Um, and unfortunately, that's one of the later stages of Lyme. Um, some of the initial stages don't necessarily involve arthritis, so it's possible that that may not be a part of the Lyme infection at all if it's um, diagnosed and treated shortly after, hopefully, you see the appearance of the bullseye rash um, and seek treatment. Now, gout, on the other hand, is something that um, is interesting because it's... Um, happens more often, believe it or not, in the big toe. It does happen in other joints as well, but older men more commonly, although it can happen in women. And then other joints, uh, I've known people who had problems with gout um, in their hands as well. But what this happens from is the deposit of uric acid crystals that mean usually that the concentration of urate in the bloodstream is also high. However, it can happen that it's not extremely high in the bloodstream, but it's concentrated in the joint space. And what makes these so painful is these urate crystals look like needles, look like tiny little extremely pointy crystals that are found in the synovial space. And so those are kind of floating around and poking into the tissue, which can be quite painful. And this all leads to an acute inflammatory response. In fact, in some cases, they end up with a nodule um, that contains, you know, some of this inflammatory substance called a tophus. Um, and the main reason this tends to happen is for some reason they're not breaking down and getting rid of, of urea the way that they should. So it is closely connected to renal disease. It's also in people who don't have renal disease connected with a deficiency of um, the enzyme that's needed to break it down. In some cases, it's dietary. Um, it used to be that in royalty, because they had a much richer diet than the general population, that they were more predisposed to gout, so it was considered like a disease of royalty. Um, but we know now that that was all related to the diet that they may have had that was quite rich um, compared to you know, other diets. So one of the, the potential treatments is to reduce the uric acid. And a drug that does that is called allopurinol. Um, colchicine can be used to reduce inflammation, but dietary changes may be a potential way to reduce those um, inflammatory periods. We know that the dietary changes usually involve reducing animal and fish flesh. Um, so it might mean sort of almost like a vegetarian diet in order to reduce the breakdown of protein that leads to the excess uric acid. And avoiding alcohol can also help with that. But pain relieving medications might be a big part of just improving the quality of life and the comfort of the individual during a time when they're having an episode of gout. 
Um, let's shift to some of the muscular conditions that might be present in an individual. Now, here's one that's genetic. In fact, I shouldn't say one because there are many different forms of muscular dystrophy. I'm really only going to go over one main kind as a primary example because it is the most common. So the types of muscular dystrophy vary based on the genetics that cause it, the area of the body that's affected, the age in which it first is noticed or age of onset, and how rapidly they progress. So the one that I want you to know predominantly is Duchenne's, which is an X-linked um, genetic form of muscular dystrophy. And because it is X-linked, it is most predominant in young males. Um, and it is also sometimes called pseudo-hypertrophic muscular dystrophy. As its name implies here, one of the things that happens is you end up with um, some changes to the muscle that might make it start to look as though it is enlarging. But let me, before I get to that point, um, let me also tell you another one that you may hear of um, called Becker's muscular dystrophy, also X-linked, meaning that it affects males. And to kind of go back through the genetics of it, um, this is kind of a similar inheritance as when we talked about um, hemophilia A. So for that disease, it is carried on the X chromosome. And so the mother is the carrier. And if you recall then, anytime that you have the mother that's a carrier, she will not have the disease because she has two X chromosomes, one that is a good gene and one that is the defective gene. And so she's able to, um, not show symptoms because of the fact that she will randomly inactivate one of these X chromosomes in each of her cells. And so it's not gonna be enough to be expressed in a way that will produce symptoms or disease state. Whereas in men, they only have one X chromosome. So they have to express whatever genes are present on that one X chromosome that they have. So if you have an unaffected male and a carrier female, these are the possibilities for any individual pregnancy. That one will be, if they have a, a boy, that it could be an unaffected boy. If they have a girl, they have the possibility of one that's unaffected or one that is a carrier. And then here, they have the chance that they would have an affected son. So it's a 25% chance here because that would be the one X that that individual inherited that they had to express. So what happens here is over time you have a degeneration of skeletal muscle. And the reason that this happens is there is a special protein in the muscle membrane and that's called dystrophin. And this protein is abnormal. And so those muscle cells then end up dying. Now, whether or not it's a rapidly progressive form or how severe it is, is usually dependent on whether it's just an abnormal dystrophin protein or whether there's a complete absence of that dystrophin protein as the individual um, develops. What this leads to then is atrophy and muscle weakness. And then over time, as that progresses, they'll have a loss of function in whatever that muscle tissue is. What you have to remember also is that the heart is a muscle. So cardiomyopathy is often a cause of death along with respiratory insufficiency because the diaphragm is a muscle, the intercostal muscles are also going to affect the ability for the lungs to work appropriately. So the, um, the lifespan of these individuals, particularly with Duchenne's is usually um, you know, maybe 20 
maybe 30 years um, because this is not something that's reversible or curable. Um, the individual might be diagnosed earlier in life. Um, for example, usually around three years old, you might notice that you know children tend to play on the ground an awful lot. And so you might notice they have trouble getting to a standing position from playing on the ground, that they may actually sort of need to walk their hands back toward their feet and then walk their hands up their legs in order to come to a standing position, indicating that there's a weakness in the pelvic girdle that's developing. And then the next thing would be a weakness in the shoulder girdle after that. And as that progresses, you will find that the individual has changes to the spinal alignment, so kyphosis and scoliosis. And then again, those changes to the lungs and the heart because of muscle weakness, respiratory insufficiency, um, cardiomyopathy. There is some dystrophin um, in the brain as well. So they might have some, um, some cognitive decline um, that is related to the damage to the dystrophin in those cells as well. They're predisposed to infection also. And they may be completely immobilized in a wheelchair in a short period of time if it's a more rapidly progressive version. Now, sometimes as those muscle cells um, die, they're replaced with fatty tissue. And so that's where you get this pseudo-hypertrophic. You know, initially they may have muscle wasting as those muscles um, disintegrate, or not disintegrate, but die and are, um, you know, replaced with scar tissue, and as they were replaced with fat tissue, they may look like they're getting larger, but it's actually not muscle tissue that's being replaced. Now, in, in terms of diagnosing once you're having this suspicion, you can look for creatine kinase that will be elevated in the bloodstream. That's one of those muscle proteins. You can look at the um, muscle conduction itself in terms of the electric stimulation of the muscle. But doing a biopsy is going to be one of the easiest ways. Now, during pregnancy, you could do genetic testing with a um, sample from the chorionic villi of the lining of the uterus during the pregnancy itself. Now, usually you would see some sort of family history on the mother's side that might indicate that there was a potential risk or genetic link to look for in the family history. Um, but it's really important to realize that even though their muscles may be deteriorating, it is important to maintain their function um, during that time of decline because that's just going to be the best way of improving their quality of life. So this may be a population you work with going forward that you're just trying to help them maintain function for as long as physically possible. This may help them delay being in a wheelchair. This might help them, um, you know, to maintain some semblance of um, confidence and independence as long as they possibly can. Fibromyalgia is an interesting condition because um, I've heard it described as just a clinical syndrome. Um, in terms of the abnormalities, they really can't find any. Um, there's no physical changes that they can note. There's no pathophysiology that they can find. The blood work is normal. Imaging is normal. So they usually have to diagnose it by excluding everything else. We know that it happens more often to middle-aged women and that one of the biggest hallmarks of this is widespread pain. 
Usually there's pain and stiffness near the joints, but it's not the joints itself. In fact, they've described certain trigger points that are very near particular joints, but the joints are completely normal when they do testing and imaging of those joints. Um, in addition to that, a lot of people with fibromyalgia will describe other things that are unrelated to the pain, like extreme fatigue, trouble sleeping, um, signs of depression. They may have numbness and headaches. I've even heard um, some description of GI problems like IBS, um, which we now know has some relationship to different types of um, neurotransmitters. And so this, we think, at least right now, the theory is that it's all related to a problem with neurotransmission that is increasing levels or at least increasing sensitivity to substance P. Remember, substance P is that neurotransmitter that um, mediates pain at the spinal cord between your afferent nerve fibers and the spinal cord. So we don't know what's causing it, but we know it seems to be somehow related to central neurotransmission. And it kind of makes sense, actually, if you look at the rest of the list, because some of these other things seem to be sort of related to neurotransmitters, like depression um, and sleep disturbances. So some of those might tell us that there's a connection between some of these different things in the nervous system. The other way that we know that this might have something to do with neurotransmitters is the things that seem to help in terms of treatment are related to neurotransmitters. For example, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors seem to be helpful in treatment along with tricyclic antidepressants. Um, muscle relaxants sometimes can help individuals. We'll talk about muscle relaxants in just a minute, um, but they don't necessarily help everybody. Sometimes NSAIDs help with pain but sometimes they don't. And that's probably because we know that the way a lot of your NSAIDs work, like ibuprofen, is through the prostaglandin system as opposed to working with substance P. And if this has to do with the uh, sensitivity to substance P, it might not be getting at the right part of that process. There is a more recent drug that seems to be helpful in mediating pain called Lyrica. That's the trade name or brand name of that. But there are things that are completely unrelated to medication that can really help with this. Um, reducing stress, regular morning exercise has been found to help a lot of people. So again, this might be something that you're putting together an exercise prescription for somebody for the benefit of reducing fibromyalgia symptoms. Um, rest during times when the pain is particularly difficult. Heat, massage can also help reducing pain. But this is one of those where, you know, maybe we'll find out at some point in the future what is causing it so that we can better manage it. It can be quite debilitating for individuals who have it. The last thing I want to talk about are some of the medications that might be used um, to relax muscle or produce a sedative effect with muscle. And these could be used for a number of different conditions. So muscle strains, back pain, muscle spasms from injury. I just mentioned the possibility of using it for fibromyalgia for some people. The issue with muscle relax, excuse me, muscle relaxants or spasmolytics is that many of them are also sedatives or central nervous system depressants. And so there are a whole lot of big side effects and issues and potential interactions. So some of the ones you may have heard of are the ones I just mentioned, Flexeril, um, Carisoprodol, which is Soma, Baclofen, which is Lyrosol, um, and then a whole bunch of different drugs in the benzodiazepines family, like Valium, Diazepam. Um, those are potential drugs 
that what people might not realize is, yes, we might take them as a muscle relaxant, but they're going to, in general, be a sedative for the entire body. So they produce things like drowsiness and dizziness, and those are some things that are important for individuals to realize, not only for daily functioning and, you know, um, operating machinery, driving, things like that, but also combining them with other things that could be potential risk. Um, like for example, Valium in particular has an anticholinergic effect, which causes blurred vision, constipation, decrease in sweating, dry mouth, um, increased heart rate, pupil dilation, that if you combine with alcohol or other central nervous system depressants, then you could have a, a overdose risk, a, um, a potential, you know, fatal event. These also tend to have risk of dependence, particularly Valium, um, but um, some people just don't like to take them or take them at the full prescribed amount anyway because they kind of make you feel, the term I've heard people say is loopy or weird, it, it makes them feel so off and uncomfortable that they may sort of find other ways not involving medication to treat um, the muscle strain or pain or muscle spasm. Um, things like heat um, to try to, you know, calm the area, um, those might be more beneficial than using a medication that causes more problems. So um, let me know if you have any questions on these. You will probably go into a ton more detail on some of these topics if you end up in PT. Um, or rehab, and so you'll probably get way more information in, in future um, professional education if you're going in that direction. But if you have any questions on what we've covered, at least for um, the purposes of this class, please let me know.